Well, I also want, before I dive in, I want to just take a moment to the new material. Before we dive into the new material, I want to take a second just to, to review real quick, because we do have some folks that are, that are here for the first time today or missed last week. Today is part three of a series that we've been in on the book of Jonah. And in week one, we spent most of our time in chapter one of Jonah. And week two, we spent most of our time in chapter two of Jonah. And this is week three, and we're going to spend most of our time in... Chapter 3 of, of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, you can begin turning uh, there. And as you're turning to Jonah chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love to give you one free today. We always keep a stack there in the back. And whether you're just visiting us today and you don't have a Bible, or if you've been here for a while and don't have one, we'd love for you to, to take one as a free gift. You don't have to sign anything or anything like that. All right, well, here's the running start that we're going to get with the, the book of Jonah. First thing I'd do, I'd encourage you to take out your notes and write this down, because this is so true. There is much more to this account than a reluctant prophet, a repentant people, and a really big fish. There is so much here. In fact, um, a little confession uh, of my own, I was kind of thinking, boy, I might have to stretch things out a little bit in Jonah chapter 2 and 3, because what's there to say in Jonah 2? It's a prayer, for crying out loud. He's in a fish, he prays. You know, um, In chapter 3, I'm like, the people repent. There is so much here. So much here. We could literally, and I'm no hyperbole, we could literally spend a month on just one of the chapters. This is so rich, and there's so much more here than just a, a simple story of a reluctant prophet, repentant people, and a really big fish. Jonah, as we discussed in week one, he was a real person. And this place that God sent him to, it was a real place. So these are real events, at least appears to be real events, that we're looking at. In chapter 1, what happens is the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And, and God says, go east to Nineveh. And Jonah goes west to that city of which we do not speak, or that region of which we do not speak, because it makes me sound silly when I say it, um, as we've well established. But Jonah doesn't get far. He gets out of the Mediterranean, and God sends a storm. Can anyone relate? <laughs> God sending a storm. Who else is without power? The grad party? So you didn't get the email that said, I can't make it because my power's out. Okay. Oh, no. Oh, okay, so we got, we, you understand storms. All right, we understand storms. Well, this was even bigger. This was even bigger. And they're out on the ocean in a little boat. And so God sends this storm, and, and these seasoned sailors start freaking out because this storm, it threatens to tear the boat apart. And so rather than just only doing their tactical maneuvering. They're like, everyone starts praying to their own gods and everyone had their individual gods and they're all praying to their individual gods. And then they discover that it's Jonah's fault. They discover that Jonah has offended the God of heaven and of earth, the God who made the dry land and the sea. And they said, ah, you, just, you, you offended the sea God. We're all dead. And so rather than offending the sea God anymore by throwing one of the sea God's own into the ocean, they make a one last desperate attempt for shore. And it feels like the more they try to get to shore, the more the storm is raging against them. And so they take Jonah's advice because Jonah said, the only way to stop this storm is to throw me overboard. And so finally they relent and they, 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 they send up a prayer. Oh God, please don't. Kill us for this. We're taking his advice. He's your guy. You know, they throw him overboard and the sea goes calm. The sea goes calm. And then chapter one ends on this little cliffhanger as now it looks like things are good. These, the people are worshiping. They're worshiping one God instead of everyone worshiping their own gods. They're worshiping the one true God. But now Jonah gets swallowed up by a fish. And that's how we end 
chapter 1. Well, last week we spent almost all our time in chapter 2. The second chapter of Jonah is almost entirely devoted to Jonah's prayer inside the fish. And it's so key because this was a turning point. It's a turning point. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the narrator really makes this clear. That up until the fish um, incident, you've got Jonah, he's on a downward trend. Downward. You see this downward movement in the way the narrator emphasizes all these things in the story. Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down to the port. Jonah goes down below the deck of the ship. And laying down, Jonah goes into a deep sleep. Then Jonah is hurled down into the water. He sinks down into the depths. He goes down to the roots of the mountains, the word says. Down to a sandy grave. And when Jonah is at the bottom, he finds that God hasn't abandoned him. He finds that God hasn't given up on him. And that's the true miracle in the book of Jonah. And we pressed into that last week. We pressed into the fact that Jonah, it is a book filled with miracles. You can't get around it. You can't. In fact, you're supposed to embrace it. You're supposed to, instead of explaining it away, you're supposed to embrace it. We're asked to believe that God spoke to Jonah. We're asked to believe that God hurled a great wind on the sea. We're asked to believe that God intensified the storm to such a degree where it threatened to rip the ship apart, but it stopped just short of doing so. We're asked to believe that God caused Jonah's lot to fall out of the shaker when they were causing, casting lots. We're asked to believe that God caused the seas to stop as soon as Jonah was tossed overboard. And then we're asked to believe that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah whole, to spit him out on dry land three days later, alive. And all of those miracles, they're just to serve as a backdrop for what's most unbelievable. And that is that God never abandoned Jonah, even though Jonah walked away from him. And we're asked to believe what's really unbelievable also, that all these sailors who were worshiping other gods, that this God would reach out to them and that they would turn their hearts towards him. So this is why I'd encourage you to write this down here as the last thing of our review. In Jonah, this, to, to understand this account, in Jonah, we are presented with a God like no other God. We're presented with a God who is not bound to the natural laws that he set in motion. He can speak to fish and order them around. He can, he can, he can hurl a great wind on the sea. And, more miraculous than any of that, we're asked to believe in a God who is like this, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We see that in the sailors, and today we're going to see that in this great city of Nineveh. So there is some background. And I mentioned that chapter 1 ended with a cliffhanger. Chapter 2 does also. But we may not see that it's a cliffhanger with with our lens. But let me explain why this is a cliffhanger. Here is what it says. Here's how Jonah chapter 2 ends. It ends with this um, verse. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, that doesn't look like a cliffhanger. That looks like, ah, he survived. He made it. He was drowning in the depths, but now he's okay because the fish spit him out on dry land. Well, this is what we might be thinking. Let me show you what the audience in Jonah's time would have been thinking. If you could, please pull out your maps. And what, what I want to draw your attention to is where Joppa is. Now, Joppa is the port where Jonah started, and then he started trying to head west. Well, he didn't get very far because God sends the great storm. Well, then Jonah gets swallowed by the fish, and the fish, we don't know exactly where the fish spit him out, but he was in there just three days, so I don't think the fish had time to go all the way around Africa and come up one of these rivers here. So, so the fish 
spits him out somewhere along the shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. Well, look where Nineveh is, where he's supposed to go. See how far that is? That, that's, that's 500 miles. Now, one of the reasons this is a cliffhanger is because this is dangerous. Back in those days, travel was dangerous. People, there weren't many roads, and so people would hide out on these roads, and they try to ambush travelers. So let's just say Jonah gets a caravan. He's in this caravan for 20, 25 days in threat of ambush. And here's where the cliffhanger really comes for people who would have understood this story. He's going into the most dangerous territory on the planet at the time. He's going into the heart of the Assyrian Empire. And people would have won. This is a dangerous journey. He's better off. He should go back to the fish. He's going to be better off there. And the reason we said send the kids out is because we're going to talk just briefly about um, the, the, the Assyrian Empire. And, and, and I'm not going to be crass or anything, but, but I want you to have at least a, a little understanding, if you're not aware, of how cruel these people were. You need to know that the Assyrians boasted. They boasted about how brutal they were. When you think of a lot of the nations that we're aware of, even the real brutal ones, they would try to hide that, right? You would have a torture chamber hidden in a dungeon somewhere. You would take a concentration camp and you would put it in some place where you would hope people wouldn't see it. A lot of the atrocities that we hear from governments, people find out. It's not because the nation brags about it. In fact, they'll try to cover it up. The Assyrians boasted. How do we know they boasted? Because we can see their boasts even today. Just go ahead and Google. Google um, uh, Assyrian reliefs. A relief is a stone, um, like a, a stone wall or a big rock where they would carve out something into it. The Assyrians, they left a record of how cruel they were. And you can find these reliefs, some of them the size of a wall. And you can see piles of heads and piles of hands because they wanted to show the world. They would place these in their palaces. They would place these in their public places. They wanted to show this is what we do because we can Archaeologists, they've uncovered huge stone walls and carvings depicting the stuff of nightmares. The Assyrians were known to cut off arms and legs, and then they would pull off other body parts. But what they would do often is they would leave one hand. Why? So they could shake that hand as the person was dying. That's the kind of stuff they brought, bragged about. When they would conquer a city, they were known to make people carry the heads of their friends in a victory parade. That's what these people did and bragged about it. Now, here's a quote. Let me give you a direct quote from an Assyrian king. And what's important to note is that this king came before Jonah. So these things were happening. The Assyrian Empire overlapped Jonah. But this is some of the stuff that was happening before Jonah's time. So this is the track record of these people. And again, he's going into the heart, deep into the Assyrian Empire. One guy with a message to say, oh, guys, stop doing this because God wants you to. Not your gods, our God, wants you to stop this. Okay, this is a quote from a king. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. He says this. He says, I flayed the skin from as many nobles as, I, as had rebelled against me, and I draped their skins over the pile of corpses. I cut the heads off their fighters and built them with them a tower before the city. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off others, their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of the heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. 
This guy isn't doing this in a confession. This is a boast. This is what we do because we can. So do you see why this is a cliffhanger? Because Jonah, he's out of the whale, and now this is where he's headed. And he's resolved to go there. I mean, that's how chapter 2 ends. In the middle of chapter 2, it's like, okay, what I vowed I will do. You told me to go, I'll go. So Jonah is headed straight into the heart of this area. All right, so that, now we, that brings us to chapter 3. So let's take a look. Jonah chapter 3, let's start with verses 1 through 3. And they say this. The word of the Lord, this is again after Jonah gets vomited out of the whale. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose. He went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breath. All right, let's hit pause. Let me talk about this. This is a little bit of a perplexing um, passage for archaeologists because they say, you know, in Jonah's time, Nineveh wasn't three days' walk from, you know, the start of the city to the end of the city. So what's going on there? Well, people explain it could be a number of things. It could be they're talking about the region. A lot of times a region was Nineveh, was um, was uh, identified by its major city, and it really was. It was a three days' walk from the beginning of that region to the end. But more of the scholars I looked at said, what's going on here is that Jonah is being called to go give this message to Nineveh, and it's going to take at least three days for him to preach. The city is that big. He's going to have to go from neighborhood to neighborhood um, because their power was out too, and they couldn't send messages. So they were gonna, he was going to preach. But anyway, regardless of that, it's a big, big, big city, a major metropolitan uh, center. So picking up then with verse 4, let's look at verses 4 and 5. They say this, Jonah began then to go into the city, and he went a day's journey. So it was a three days journey to do all this. He's only one day in. Keep that in mind. He's one day in, and he calls out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least. All right. I, as a person who most weeks has to construct a message, I covet the economy of words that Jonah had here. Um, if I were able to reduce my messages to eight words in English, that would shave 15 to 20 hours off of my week and 35 minutes off of your Sunday morning. And so, sorry about that. His sermon is eight words in English, you know, and only five in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it's a five-word sermon. I don't know in Ninevonian how many words it was. But it's a short, short sermon. But here's my point. My point is this. It's a word from God. Jonah is given a word from God. Remember, he says, wait and give him the message that I tell you. Well, here's the message he told him. And it's only five Hebrew words. And the people responded. That's because... When God gives a word, his words are well chosen, and they have the power to pierce, pierce deep into people. I'm seeing some nodding. Some of you have had those words from God before. And the only thing is, here's the, here's the disclaimer on that. They'll do those things for those who have ears to hear. There are some who, who won't receive a message from God, and there's others who will. I said they're both well chosen, and they pierce the hearts of all who have ears to hear. Let's start with the well chosen nature of these words. In here, do you, you see, I put the uh, Hebrew word there. I don't know how to pronounce it, but I'm just going to go with hapak. 
just because I can say hapak. And so, so look, that word is a key word. Where it says Nineveh is going to be overthrown, it's that, that word that we're using, that English word overthrown, is a Hebrew word mean, that, that's called hapak. And this is key to understanding what God is saying here. What God is saying is, is that I'm going to hapak, right? The, it, you have the, 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 um, the potential here of this happening to you. And this word, at least the root of this word, it can mean either turn over and destroy or... It can mean turn around and bring to repentance. That's huge. This one word can either mean you're going to get destroyed, you're going to get turned upside down, you're going to get obliterated, or it can mean you're going to repent, you're going to turn from your ways. This word has that range of meaning, and that is key. Next week, we're going to see, as we press into Jonah chapter 4, we're going to see Jonah knew exactly what God was offering them. Jonah knew exactly what God was offering. In fact, that's why Jonah says he ran from God in the first place. Jonah, as I've commented before, I don't think Jonah was running out of fear. No one wants to face the possibility of death, but that wasn't Jonah's greatest fear. That's not why he didn't want to go to Nineveh. Several times along the way, he says, kill me now, kill me now. His greater fear was that the Ninevites might take God up on this, and they might turn and repent and be spared. That's what appears to be what, what Jonah was most afraid of. And that brings us to the pierce-the-heart nature of these words. If you know the story of the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, there, was, there were two other towns where God says, I'm going to hapak you. I'm going to hapak you. And he just apocalypses them. He just, he just does. Because, and why there? Because they didn't turn. They, they didn't turn. In, in fact, there was a little, really interesting scene where it appears to be some bargaining going on with God. And, and Abraham, as he's talking to God, God says, there's not even ten people in this city who will turn. There's not even ten. But here we've got Nineveh. They receive this message, and they turn. Five-word sermon, one day of the three-day crusade. They turn. Wow. They had ears to hear. They had ears to hear. And when people have ears to hear, all they need is the five-word sermon. And it doesn't even have to be audible. I was, I was um, looking at, uh, at one of my sources, and one of my sources, was she shared a story. She, she said I, that she learned sign language from this, this woman. And she said this woman that she learned sign language for was once um, at, a, at, at some sort of service, some sort of Christian service. And she said, in this service, the, the pastor was just... Boy, it was anointed, and God was speaking through this pastor, and it was a message calling people back to a relationship with God. And she said, I'm watching this service, and I, as a person who knows a little bit of sign language, I'm looking over, and I see some people that were there, some kind of group that was there that was deaf. And she could realize there's nobody signing for them. No one's signing for them. And here is this powerful message, and nobody's signing. And at the time, the instructor just knew a little bit of sign, and she's like, I can't interpret Everything the pastor's saying. But, but I, I do know the sign for Jesus. I know the sign for died. I know the sign for, and I know the sign you. So this woman said, this is what I have, God. And she went up and she signed, Jesus died for you. To, to those folks who couldn't hear. And she said, well, let me just read what, what happened next. Tears began to flow from their eyes. Something unexplainable happened. They began to flood the altar without prompting. They gathered together on their knees. 
and came to the Lord in salvation. And this teacher knew it wasn't four simple signs that accomplished that. God had already been at work in their hearts. And her simple act of obedience had a powerful effect. And some of you have probably been a part of that before, where you just did something you felt like you were supposed to do, and then you realized God had set this all up. You just did this one little act, and God had been at work behind the scenes. I see some nods, yeah. God had been working behind the scenes, and you were the right person at the right place for the right people at the right time. You don't get any credit for that because God just set it all up, and you were just obedient, and boom, something happened. And that's apparently what happened here at Nineveh. We know a lot now through archaeology, through, through research. We know a lot of what was going on in the city of Nineveh right around that time period. Back then, a lot of folks who weren't following the God of Israel, they looked for omens. They interpreted whether God is pleased with us based on all of these omens around them. Listen to some of the omens that they were seeing in Nineveh in 765 B.C. and again in 759 B.C., right around the time of Jonah, two plagues ravished, ravaged the people of Nineveh. In 763 B.C., there was an eclipse a total eclipse of the sun. At this time in history, there was widespread famine in the region. There were also numerous revolts. The Assyrian Empire, before the time of Jonah, very powerful. After the time of Jonah, very powerful. During the time of Jonah, they were vulnerable. And there were all these revolts happening within the, the, the Assyrian Empire. And they had all these challenges from the outside, multiple enemies rising up against them. So the Assyrian Empire was vulnerable. They weren't as powerful as they once were, nor were they as powerful as they would later become. They were ready. The omens were all signing this direction. that Someone wasn't happy with them. And they responded. They responded. Nineveh was ripe for this word. And it was interesting. I, um, as, I was, as I was processing this, I thought, you know... There's another prophet from Galilee who came much later, a man named Jesus. And Jesus spoke to his disciples. He was teaching his disciples once, and he said, Look, the fields are ripe for harvest. You could be the right people at the right place at the right time. And I thought, I wonder what the context was from that. So I I looked it up. The context for that? John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And that story ends with a town coming to faith. A town where God had set a whole lot of stuff up. Jesus comes, brings the right message to the right people at the right time. The fields were right. You know, one of the things that we've been doing each week in your notes is we've been trying to encourage you to be praying that God would give us ears to hear and that he would set some things up. And I would encourage you to do that. Start praying and saying, God, would you give me ears to hear? Would you, would you give me a heart for different people? Would you help me to, to walk around more aware of your presence and your guidance? Because you, the, us spreading the good news, that's not optional. It's not optional. And how much better to spread the good news to the right people with the right words at the right time. So for us to be attentive to that. All right, well... Let's continue on with the account. Let's pick up with verse 6. So the people, right? The people, the common folks, they hear this message. They're repenting. They're an all-out. We are sorry. 
God that we really don't know, but God that we've obviously offended. We are really sorry about that. And then it says, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And the king arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and had it published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? May God may turn and relent. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, i got to confess right now that I have a natural cynicism when it comes to politicians. And so right now I'm speaking... Um, Speaking not from the word of God, this is just me, all right? But I'm a little cynical that he necessarily, at least there's a part of me, that's personal cynicism that says, yeah, he just, he just repented um, sincerely. The cynicism part is because this wouldn't be the first time that a, a politician hopped on the bandwagon, right, of something. And the one that jumps out to me is when he goes, all right, don't just you repent, but let's make a decree. Let's pass legislation that we have to cover the beasts, cover your chickens and goats with sackcloth. That just sounds all too familiar with some stuff. But anyway, that's, that's me. That's me. I'm admittedly outside the bounds of good biblical exegesis here. But I did follow this rabbit trail a little bit, and here's something I did find that kind of supports my theory a tiny bit. Um, it appears as though in the, ancient, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Near East, uh, when there were bad omens, you know what some of the kings would do? When there were bad omens, some of the kings would, would appoint a temp king. So in case there was some smiting that happened, temp king would get smited. And so while temp king is on the throne, real king is going and he's getting right with whatever god he offended. And if temp king gets smited, then he just comes back into the throne. And if temp king doesn't get smited, then he has temp king killed so that he can take the throne. So obviously what I said about politicians is totally off base. They never do... Anything like that. But now here is what the Bible itself says. All right? So now I'm back to the Bible off of my rant, my personal cynicism, all right? That this guy, ah, he might have been doing this out of, out, of, out of just political whatever. This is what the Bible actually says. The Bible actually says that it appears to be sincere. The Bible actually paints this like it's, it's really sincere. So let's go with the Bible. How about that? All right? The Bible says that it's sincere. And look at this. Now, I'm not a, liter, uh, a literary expert by any means, but I understand from a number of my sources that what's happening here is a form of literature called uh, chiastic literature. And what we see, this is very intentional through the Holy Spirit, through the, this narrator. What we have is we have this reversal where this king, he rises from his throne in response to this repentance. He rises from his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He then covers himself, not with royal robes, but what? Sackcloth, humility, mourning. And then he sits down in the dust and the ashes. There's this, this, this thing going on where this appears to be a real sincere, sincere um, repentance on his part. And one of the things that's happening with this repentance is the narrator, he's contrasting Jonah and the king. When Jonah, the prophet, hears the word of the Lord, the movement is downward and away. But when this evil king hears the word of the Lord, the movement is up and towards God. And in this act of surrender and humility, 
The overthrow of Nineveh is complete. Nineveh has been overthrown. It's been hypocrite. Take a look at this. It has been completely overthrown. The people of Nineveh, they turn from their sinful ways. Repentance is from the bottom up rather than the top down. The king, he relinquishes his throne to the God of Israel. The same king issues a proclamation calling everyone to urgently call on the Lord rather than call on the gods of their nation. And even the animals are sporting sackcloth. I mean, this is complete, right? Nineveh has been overthrown, but they chose life instead of death. There is so much wordplay. There is so much wordplay going on in the book of Jonah. There's wordplay on this, that you have this opportunity. You could do this one thing, but this one thing can lead to light and death. Here's some some more wordplay. This is the last verse of Jonah chapter 3. It says this. When God saw what they did, that they repented, the people, the king, everyone repented. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, and there's the Hebrew word, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm just going to say ra, because I can say ra, right? So when, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their ra, then God relented of the Ra that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Tons of wordplay. Now this Ra word, this is a word that is used multiple times throughout the book of Jonah. Take a look at this. Multiple times. Use of the word Ra in Jonah, it can be translated in English into evil or disaster or discomfort. The same word has this big range of meaning. So we see this word. We see that the Lord confronts Jonah with the Ra of the city of Nineveh. The sailors decide to cast lots to find who the source of the Ra is that they experience. The sailors confront Jonah, wondering why Ra has come upon them. The Ninevite king calls for the inhabitants of the city to turn from their Ra. God sends, uh, God sees that the city has turned from their Ra, and he relents from the Ra that he was going to send. God's gracious response to Nineveh rod Jonah greatly, which we're going to see next week. And Jonah's anger arises from the fact that God relents from Ra. And the Lord appoints a plan to save Jonah from Ra. You have these opportunities. You know, so often these things that we interpret as evil aren't necessarily evil. They're just uncomfortable. And something we said, I believe it was week one, is that oftentimes God either sends or allows these things to happen to us, these Ra's, to happen to us. Not to pay us back, but to turn us back. He'll allow these things to happen. Now, in Jonah 3.10, some people believe that God changed his mind. Let's put it back up on the screen. What it says is this, when God saw what they did, the people, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he has said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And some people look at this and go, God changed his mind. Well, It's hard to go there because elsewhere the Bible says God doesn't change his mind. Here's an example of that. This is 1 Samuel 15.29. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a man that he should change his mind. So what's going on in Jonah 3.10? You know, because it sure looks on the surface like he changed his mind. In fact, some of your Bibles might even say that, some of your translations. Here's the, here's the Hebrew word that, that people are having trouble translating. And we have three, um, uh, three different translations, the New Living, New Revised Standard, and Message that, that translate it as God changed his mind. 
We have the King James and the Revised Standard where it says God repented. And then we have the Amplified. They translated as God revoked his sentence. And then the NIV, um, the English Standard and the uh, New American Standard, they, re, uh, they translated as God relented. Now, I'm not a linguist, but I would disagree with the first two translations. And I disagree because I believe God is too wise to change his mind. And I believe that God is too holy to be in need of repentance. What I see, if you take this passage from Jonah, Jonah 3.10, and you compare it to what the Bible says elsewhere, it appears to me that God is just doing what he promised he would do. Here's an example. This is what God says to do. This is Jeremiah 18.7-10. And see if this doesn't you know, fit in with, um, with, with what happens in Nineveh. Look at this, Je- Jeremiah 18, uh, 7-10. If at any time I announce that a, king, a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that notion I warned, or if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce to a nation or kingdom that it's to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I'd intended for it. It appears to me that God's just doing what he said he would do. And this isn't just a theme from this book, Jeremiah. It's not just a theme from Jonah. This idea of God relenting, Graciously, when, when people repent, that's the theme of the Bible. That's the gospel. That is the good news. That if people turn to God, they can be reconciled with him. Amen. Amen. In fact, look, here's just a couple examples where you see this type of thing in play. God invites us to turn. There's a place to write this down. God invites us to turn from sin and turn to him. This is an invitation. In Jonah... Jonas, you know, we see this, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, and we see that this was an opportunity. They could either get rod or they could use the rod to turn to good, right? We have John the Baptist. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Jesus says in the book of Revelation, those whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline, so be zealous and what? Repent. This is good news. This is not an obligation. This is an invitation. Let me say that again. This is not an obligation. This is an invitation. I know sometimes it feels like an obligation. Well, who wants to submit their life to do what God tells them to do? I'd much rather do what I want to do. You've got a choice. Most of creation doesn't have a choice. When God speaks to the whale, the whale does what God says to do. When God speaks to the waves, the waves do what God says to do. God speaks to the wind, the wind does what God says to do. God speaks to us, we can choose to ignore it. So let me say to you what I said to the 9 o'clock group. If you feel like God's asking too much, then go ahead and, and, and be your own God. And let me know how that works out for you. Go ahead and just say, it's my money, and I'm going to spend it the way I want. Go ahead and say, it's, it's my time, and I want to spend it how I want. 
Sleep with whomever you want, whenever you want. Always follow your heart. Always follow your passions. And see if they lead you where you really want to go. See if they lead you to great joy. See if they, your, your heart and your passions lead you to lasting peace. And see if they lead you to incomparable freedom. Or see if following your heart and following your passions always, especially when they're in conflict with God, see if they don't lead you to a, lead you to a place that's more empty and where you end up with a lot of regret. The whale doesn't have that choice. We do have that choice. And if you ever do come to a place where you say, you know what? I have gone down that path. I've been my own God. And this isn't working for me. No, please know that there is a God who relentlessly pursues you and reaches out to you. If you haven't already, please write this down. I mean, this is, this is the major theme of the Bible. That when we sincerely repent, God graciously relents. The sailors, that was their story. People of Nineveh, that was their story. People in this room can testify. It's our story. He's a good God. This isn't just an isolated, teachable moment from the story of a man who got swallowed by a whale. This is the good news that our faith was founded on. That our Creator relentlessly pursues us and calls us home. Here's how, the, here's how this promise is recorded in the book of Joel. This is Joel chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. He relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing for the Lord your God. Now, when it comes to repentance, there's certainly a personal component. And that's the part I think most of us are familiar with. And so one of the questions I want to leave you with today is this. What is God inviting you to repent from? And this isn't an if, and this isn't uh, uh, anything like that. This is a what. And one of the things that we want to try to, to do that I hope we would do a better job of is reminding each other of this. You know, we try to build it right into our, our, our church calendar. Once a month, we have communion. We encourage people to, to go before God and to, to seek him and to say, God, where am I out of line so we can come back? But this shouldn't be a once a month thing. It should be a daily thing because you don't want to get far off. It's better to make those little course corrections rather than the big ones. So that's a question we're going to give you time to. When we close the service here, we're just going to give you a little time of silence to pray and say, God, what would you have me repent from? But there is one more piece to this. And this is the last piece I want to give you here today. What is God inviting us to repent from? Because we see we've got cities sometimes. We've got people. The people of Israel, the nation of Israel needed to repent as a people. city of Nineveh repented as a people. What would God say to us as a church? And so I want to guide... Oh, before I say it, I'm, this is a real question too. And this is not just a one-time offer. This is ongoing. Um, let us know. If you're starting to sense, hey, as a group... As a church, we have some things we need to repent of. We want to be quick to do that. We want to be quick to do that. And now I'm not talking about preference stuff. I don't want to get an email tomorrow morning that says, oh, we need to repent because we offer cookies instead of carrots on Sunday mornings. You know, that's preference. We can have that discussion. That's not a repent thing. A repent is the Bible says don't do this. 
and we do this as a people. Or the Bible says, do this, and we don't do this as a people. If you start to sense there's some things like that, that we're not doing that we should, or doing that we shouldn't, let us know. You can let me know. Otherwise, we also created a new email that you can use for this and other things, an email called elders at emmanuelcovenant.com that goes right to our chair and um, our vice chair. It goes directly to them, and then we'll make sure that um, things that come in, we distribute it to. So let us know if there's some things that, that you feel like we're out of line as a church. All right, well, I do want to close this prayer, uh, close this service with a prayer. So let's, let's pray. First, we'll do some personal, and then we'll, we'll pray. I want to lead us in prayer with it as a church. So let's start. Father, we come to you now, and we thank you for this invitation. We thank you for this invitation that, that you invite us to come back to you. Lord, your ways are good. Your laws are good. And I ask right now, we ask, Father, that you would open our minds and our hearts and reveal those areas where we've, we're walking to the right or to the left or 180 degrees the other way. What would you have us repent of as individuals this morning? I thank you, we thank you for your great promises. Including the one that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are an unbelievable God and, and we want to embrace that part of who you are. And so we bring our sins to you today. We say we're sorry, Father. And we ask that you give us the strength and conviction to turn from them and to turn towards you. And now, Father, I, I want to um, pray for us as a people. And we come before you now and, and we confess that this church is yours. This is yours. It is not ours. You gave us this name, Emmanuel Covenant, God with us. Father, that is a name that, that we aspire, we aspire for you to bring us closer and closer that, to that, where this is a place where you speak and we listen, that this is a place where we are more and more like you and less and less unlike you. And Father, we, we want to know if there's ways, not if. We want to know where we're not walking according to your ways. Father, we want to give like you've taught us to give as a church corporately. And we pray, Lord, that you will convict us you will, you will help us to guide our stewardship of these resources you've entrusted us with. <laughs> Father, we want to give you our best efforts. And we pray, Lord, that even more and more and more that you would inspire us when we come before you to, to prepare for your presence as we would more so than any earthly king. Father, we want to reach out the way you taught us to reach out. We want to hear your words. So show us, Lord, if we're where. You would have us to, to, to reach out more and with whom as a group. Father, we want to serve each other the way you taught us to serve. We pray, Lord, that if that's an area where, where you would have us step up or if an area where we're not doing it, then, then show us. 
Father, we want to, to go your direction. We pray that you'll inspire us to pray and to seek you with greater intensity. And Lord, forgive us for making decisions often with, without really pressing into what you want and just doing what seems right to us. So, Father, we, we lay this church before you. We ask that you'll continually remind us to do that. If it takes storms, then so be it. But may this church be your church. So, Lord, if there are things, not if, the things that you would have us to corporately repent of, would you speak to multiple people so that we can clearly know that this came from you? That's our heart's cry. So, Lord, we pray that you would do this, and we thank you for the invitation to do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So let us know if you start to sense, hey, here are some things that we should repent of. All right, well, next week we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, we just left off with a miraculous response. Miraculous response. Jonah gives a five-word sermon, and he's only one day of his three-day crusade, and the people are already there. Boom. They're, they've turned. Miraculous things have happened. God spoke. People responded. And here's what happens at the beginning of Jonah, chapter 4. That displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry and said, Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. That's where we pick up next week. Let's pray. Please stand. Let me pray a blessing as we go forth. Oh, God, thank you again that you desire to bless us. We pray as people go forth that you will bless us with, with ears to hear so that we can be guided by your spirit and, and not only personally guided in such a way where you'll help bring us back on path our, ourselves, but Lord, that you'd also guide us to these adventures where you've set something up and we have the tremendous opportunity to be the right person, right place, right time. Give us ears to hear that too, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.